Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Educating Investors Podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, Financial Advisor of Harmony Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode, Banking Crisis of 2023. I believe that educated investors equal successful investors. The goal of this podcast is to help to educate as many individuals as possible on markets, the economy, and financial planning topics. When the Fed and other central banks tend to over-tighten monetary policy, things tend to break. In this instance, the banking system started to break, leading to runs on deposits and banks. We'll look at the banking crisis, is it over, and what it means for the market and the economy. We all know when the Fed tightens policy, things normally break, which causes them to reverse course. Two wrongs don't make a right. The problem is that we will not know that they have over-tightened until after the fact because monetary policy acts with a lag. History is repeating itself again. This time it's not different. And this tightening cycle is the beginning of a banking crisis leading to run on deposits, especially at small and regional banks. This is not the first banking crisis the Fed has caused. According to David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research, here is the history of other financial and corporate failures and just how long it took the Feds of yesteryear to respond with a series of rate cuts. Franklin National, October 1974, the Fed eased that month. Penn Square, July of 1982, the Fed eased that month. Continental of Illinois, May of 1984, the Fed switched from tightening to easing aggressively one month later. Lincoln Savings, April of 1989, the Fed eased two months later. Orange County, December 1994, the Fed eased seven months later. Long-term capital, September 1998, the Fed eased that month. Global Crossings, January 2001, the Fed eased that month, intermeeting. Bear Stearns Hedge Funds, July of 2007, the Fed eased two months later. The repo market blow up of September 2019, the Fed eased that month. David Rosenberg goes on to state that every financial crisis came on the heels of an aggressive Fed tightening cycle, and they all marked the end of the rate hikes and the onset of a series of cuts, and no fewer than three, far more when they involve recessions. So what happened with Silicon Valley Bank to cause it to fail? The pandemic and monetary and fiscal policy response led to a surge in money supply and liquidity with tech startups and venture capital firms benefiting. In turn, that led to a massive surge in deposits to Silicon Valley Bank. To boost the returns on those deposits, Silicon Valley Bank loaded up on longer-term government bonds. As interest rates surged after years of being held at much lower levels, regulators along with executives of banks didn't fully anticipate the hit banks would take on the value of their bond holdings. The banks reacted to rising rates and losses on securities bought in early 2021 by designating them as held to maturity in the interest of mark-to-market losses not flowing through the bank's income statements. Regulators allow bank treasuries to park bonds in two accounting-friendly books, available for sale and held to maturity. In both cases, if treasuries or corporate mortgage-backed security bonds lose value, the bank's profit and loss does not record the loss immediately. The unrealized gains and losses of securities held and as for sale hits the capital position of the bank, not its P&L. Bonds booked to held to maturity, books are reported at amortized cost, or in other words, the unrealized loss basically do not show up in the bank's financial statements. This creates an incentive scheme to park as many bonds as possible in these accounting categories. As the Federal Reserve interest rate hike sent bond prices plunging last year, some of the country's largest banks used simple accounting maneuvers to help keep billions of dollars of losses from piling up on the books. They declared that they intended to hold on to large portions of their money-losing bonds until they matured rather than selling them, and they then changed the bonds' accounting labels accordingly. From then on, the bonds would be frozen in time no matter how far their values fell in the market. 
However, when you need liquidity, banks can only sell a small portion of the held in the majority bond before being tainted as non-compliant from regulators. In total, Silicon Valley banks asked for sale and held in maturity portfolios had $2.5 billion and $15.2 billion in unrealized losses, respectively, as of December 31st of 2022. The sum of the unrealized losses was actually greater than Silicon Valley's total Tier 1 capital of $17.5 billion as of December 31st of 2022. Silicon Valley's bank parent, SVB Financial Group, didn't reclassify any securities last year, and most of the bonds were labored as held to maturity from the get-go. That meant the Silicon Valley Bank had locked itself into long-term bets that interest rates would stay low. The unrealized losses on those bonds at year-end were almost as large as SVB's $16.3 billion of total equity. It couldn't sell the bonds without booking losses and taking hits to capital, so this is not a problem unless the bank needed to sell bonds to raise capital to meet capital requirements for the bank. When the tech sector started to come under extreme pressure and startups were not able to go public to raise capital, these companies started to withdraw their deposits. Silicon Valley's problems were that the industry concentration in terms of deposits were made worse when more than 95% of their deposit base was not FDIC insured, ranking them 99 out of the top 100 banks, and more than 55% of their assets were invested in long-term government bonds, ranking them number one out of the top 100 banks. This would lead to Silicon Valley Bank being forced to sell bonds as their deposits started to leave. Prior to Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, we can see the bank was under severe liquidity stress as it had lost $16 billion in deposits in 2022. According to a timeline put together by the Wall Street Journal, on March 8th, Silicon Valley Bank announced it would book $1.8 billion of losses after selling some of its investments to cover increasing withdrawals. The bank said client cash burn had remained elevated and increased further in February, leaving its deposit at the end of the month lower than expected. It said it planned to raise $2.25 billion by selling a mix of common and preferred stocks. On March 9th, Silicon Valley Bank's stocks crashed when the market opened. As the panic spread through text and social media, venture capital firms began pulling their money out of Silicon Valley Bank and urging their portfolio companies to do the same. By the time Silicon Valley Bank closes for business that day, depositors have attempted to withdraw $42 billion. On March 10th, shares of Silicon Valley Bank are halted Friday morning after a pre-market sell-off, soon after federal regulators announced that they have taken control of the bank before it can open. It is the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history after Washington Mutual's collapse during the height of the 2008 financial crisis. On March 12th, as worries of bank runs spread to other banks, federal regulators on Sunday unveil emergency measures to stem the fallout from Silicon Valley Bank's failure. They announced they had taken control of a second bank, Signature Bank, making it the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. Regulators said customers of both banks will get all their money back. They also announced a new lending program for banks. This led to run on other banks, especially regional and smaller banks that had large number of unrealized losses from their bond portfolios, concentrated deposit baits, and larger percentage of their deposits being uninsured. This was a financial stability issue that was growing under the surface that the Federal Reserve was aware of that finally broke. Unrealized losses on investment securities in the U.S. banking system were over $600 billion at the end of 2022. Uninsured deposits as percentage of all deposit at FDIC institutions has been growing has been larger than those deposits that are insured since around 2014. According to S&P Global Market Intelligence, some banks with higher percentages of uninsured deposits to domestic deposits include Bank of New York Mellon, State Street, Northern Trust, Citigroup, First Republic, East West Bank Corp., and GoAmerica. 
These banks also have over 30% loan and held to maturity securities to total deposits. These banks would have their risk of deposits leaving, leading them to not meet capital requirements and having to sell securities at losses to meet those capital requirements. So what did the Fed, FDIC, and U.S. Treasury do to try to regain confidence in the banking system and to help support other banks that could be in trouble with unrealized losses on their bond holdings, which could force them to sell with the continued risk of deposit flight? The Fed, in conjunction with the FDIC, provided a guarantee to cover all deposits of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and a new short-term lending facility, the Bank Term Funding Program. That program allows banks to borrow at par value U.S. government bonds for up to a year, regardless of their present mark-to-market price. Those terms were also applied to the traditional discount window. This helped to stabilize confidence in the immediate wake of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, even if it wasn't a permanent confidence fix. Even though the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is not considering covering all uninsured deposits at U.S. banks while ruling out the need for a broad boost in deposit insurance, she did state that there could be government refunds of uninsured deposits for banks that fail that pose systemic risk to the financial system. The Treasury, alongside the FDIC, can use a systemic risk exception to cover all of an individual bank's depositors with accounts above the $250,000 limit. This will lead to an implied but not official backing of uninsured deposits. Congress have to change the FDIC limit of $250,000 to increase it officially. This, along with the bank term funding program borrowing from the discount window, will hopefully lead to less risk of other banks having to sell securities at a loss to raise capital based on deposit withdrawal. So have these measures helped to calm the risk of the current banking crisis? Deposits for all banks in the U.S. fell by $76.2 billion a week of April 12th from the previous week. Deposits decreased at large in small U.S. banks a week of April 12th from the previous week by $44.6 billion and $4.6 billion, respectfully. As things have started to normalize some of the bank system, bank borrowing after declining some in previous weeks increased the week of April 12th. Borrowing from all U.S. banks increased by $29.3 billion, and the increase for large banks was $8.6 billion, and for small banks it was $11.1 billion. So deposits decreasing and bank borrowing increasing week over week for the week of April 12th shows that the banking crisis may be slowing but is not over. It does not mean that there could not be more bank casualties to potentially come. However, the risk now for banks could be lower earnings due to higher funding costs and decreased lending. Deposit rates will need to move higher in order for some banks to keep deposit. This is due to the competition that higher rates on Treasury CDDs and money markets have compared to very low rates paid on bank deposits. Even before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, lending activity was tightening across the spectrum of commercial, industrial, and consumer loans. Lending conditions have continued to tighten since the beginning of the banking crisis, and such tightening always tend to precede recessionary slowdowns for the economy. Increased emergency borrowing through the Fed's discount window by banks tend to lead to bank-tightening lending standards. As deposit leads for higher yield and bank bond portfolios are underwater, this leads banks to have higher cost of funding, including the discount window, leading to less lending and slower economic growth. This type of tightening always tends to precede recessionary slowdowns. The impact on regional and small banks from the bank crisis will have an impact on the economy as well. According to BCA Research, banks with less than $250 billion in assets issue 49% of commercial and industrial loans, 45% of consumer loans, 80% of commercial real estate loans, and 57% of residential real estate loans. 
Regional banks whose stock prices were down substantially due to the bank crisis are likely to be more risk-averse, at least in the near term, until the situation becomes clearer and volatility subsides. Increasing the interest paid on deposit isn't without cost. In the base case, it would lower the net interest margin and contribute to equity share price volatility. In a worst case, increasing deposit rates could render some banks unprofitable as they pay more for deposit than the yields they are getting on securities that have unrealized losses and loan holdings that are underwater that they have accumulated over the last two to three years. As famed investor Howard Marks says, crashes, meltdowns, and widespread misbehavior brings on cause for increased regulation. There's already talk about more regulation coming out of Washington. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Federal Reserve is actively considering closing a loophole that allows some mid-sized banks to effectively mass losses on securities they hold, a contributing factor in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The potential change mentioned relates to how banks and regulatory capital measures reflect unrealized gains and losses for securities labeled available for sales. Banks have the option of selling such securities or holding them to maturity. The changes under their consideration would likely reverse that, which would mean unrealized losses would dent capital levels. Regional banks that are impacted could be made to bolster capital. That could prompt steps such as trimming buybacks, retaining more earnings, or raising new capital from investors. This could lead to banks eventually slowing or stopping stock buybacks that would help support the price of stocks and potentially stop raising, in worst case, cutting their dividends. The additional cost of regulation could lead to more mergers and acquisitions of smaller and regional banks, especially after the decline in many small and regional bank stock prices and after the crisis continues to slow. Do we have too many banks in the United States? According to Howard Marks, Canada, Australia, and Britain functions very well with far fewer banks in the U.S., Canada, for example, has $2 trillion of GDP and just 34 domestic banks, while in 2021, the U.S. had 4,236 FDIC-insured commercial banks for its $20 trillion of GDP. Could regulators do a better job if they had fewer banks to monitor? In conclusion, the over-tightening of monetary policy by the Fed led to interest rates moving up quickly and the long-term bonds and bank balance sheets that were purchased by the management of these banks to increase return lost value, which meant they had unrealized losses on those holdings which would become realized if they had to sell them. Banks moved many of these bonds from ask-for-sale category to the held-to-maturity category for the unrealized gains and losses of securities not to impact the capital position of their bank. This worked until there was a run on deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, which led to the bank having to sell these bonds at losses, causing a much larger run on deposits. The Federal Reserve, FDIC, and Treasury covered all deposits, including uninsured deposits, and started a new short-term lending facility, the Bank Term Funding Program. That program allows banks to borrow at par value U.S. government bonds for up to a year regardless of their present mark-to-market price. Those terms were also applied to the traditional discount window. This would hopefully allow banks to lend this collateral to borrow without having to sell their bonds with losses. Investors need to watch and see that borrowing by banks from the Fed start to stabilize and decline, along with deposits starting to stabilize and grow, especially at small and regional banks. This does not mean that there won't be additional casualties of the bank crisis as we move through it. Moody's Investor Service downgraded 11 regional lenders on Friday, including U.S. Bank Corp., Zions Bank Corp., Bank of Hawaii, and Western Alliance Bank Corp., 
one of the banks hardest hit by regional banking turmoil, which received a two-dot downgrade, suggesting higher interest rates and recent bank failures have ushered in greater instability. The increased cost of funding for many small regional banks, whether through higher rates paid on deposits, higher costs to bank funding such as CDs, or borrowing from the Federal Home Loan Bank, along with tightening of lending standards, could lead to lower earnings for many of these banks, along with the possibility of decreased buybacks, potential dividend cuts, and volatile stock prices. Deposit rates tend to peak around two to three quarters after the Fed stops raising its benchmark Fed funds rate, which suggests that they could continue to rise through the end of the year. The increased emergency borrowing from the Fed by these banks correlates with tightening lending standards, which tends to lead to slower economic growth and recessions. According to economists at Goldman Sachs, every 10% decline in bank profitability reduces lending by 2%. If the shares of the Fed interest rate changes that are passed on to the bank deposit rates, some kind called deposit betas, reach level seen in 2007, the last time the Fed raised rates close to current levels, that could lead to a 3-6% to 6% decline in lending in the U.S., they expect that that could reduce economic output point by 0.3 to 0.5 percentage points this year. Small and regional banks are a very important cog in the U.S. economy, especially to small business. According to Goldman Sachs, businesses with fewer than 100 employees receive nearly 70% of their commercial and industrial loans from banks with less than $250 billion in assets and 30% of such lending from banks with less than $10 billion. They go on to state, in most U.S. counties, small and mid-sized banks account for 90% of loans to small businesses. There will be opportunities in the small and regional banks as borrowing from the Fed stabilizes and decreases as deposits leaving start to stabilize and grow again. This should happen a few quarters after the Fed stops raising rates. The valuation of these banks are being reset lower with the additional risk caused by their recent banking crisis based on their underwater bond and loan portfolios, along with higher costs of funding leading to potentially lower earnings. The cost of additional regulation which could come from this crisis could lead to mergers and acquisitions in these banks after the smoke starts to clear based on large number of banks in the U.S. Does the U.S. need 4,236 FDIC-insured commercial banks? This completes this episode of the Educating Investors Podcast. I know that time is an important asset for everybody, so I appreciate you taking a part of your day to listen. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, feel free to share this with other friends and family that may be interested. Also, feel free to check out my website at www.harmonywealthmanagement.com to learn more about what I do as well as find my contact information and link to my LinkedIn page. The Educating Investors Podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The information presented on the Educating Investors Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The Educating Investors Podcast is so Scott Peterson and his firm Harmony Wealth Management LLC should not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on the Educating Investors Podcast.